terrorism, law, and democracy. Emergency. 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 Terrorism and the rule of law. The international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11, 2001. Part 11, Human Rights and the Rule of Law. Assalamu alaikum. This is the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy, examining the impact of the terrorist crimes of September 11th on the rule of law and the principles of fundamental justice. My name is Khalid Safar. Welcome to Part 11, Human Rights and the Rule of Law. We have considered the risks of new national security legislation since 9-11 in terms of the conflict between national security objectives and civil liberties. Beyond the question of how states treat the rights of their citizens, we can ask how has September 11th impacted on human rights, on their development and on their protection? How has it affected the emerging culture of human rights in international law? And finally, how has it changed the status of human beings before national jurisdictions? Let me explain very clearly. There's a question of hypocrisy. There's a question of selectivity. And there's, there's the lack of understanding the meaning of universality of human rights and fundamental rights. So we use and we apply human rights selectively. We don't apply it in an even way. That means we essentially undermine the whole idea of universality of human rights and fundamental rights. That is, essential, that is essentially the problem. And I understand that Canadian government try to do something, but they can't do much because we are extremely dependent on the U.S. in terms of politics, in terms of economy. So, so long as we are completely 80% dependent on American American economy, the, the maneuverability is, is, quite, is quite problematic, and I'm not very optimistic about that. I'm sorry to say that. The international obligations in the fight against terrorism now imposed by the United Nations Security Council since 9-11 emphasize international, national, and economic security over the basic human rights of the world's citizens. For example, Resolution 1373, adopted by the Security Council in response to the events of 9-11, imposes specific obligations and measures that member states must incorporate in their national laws to promote and secure international peace and security, at the risk of running the full military sanction of the United Nations if they don't. Gone is the language of human rights and respect of those rights, which used to appear in UN resolutions about terrorism. For example, in 1999, the Security Council adopted Resolution 1269, which on the contrary, and I quote, emphasized the necessity to intensify the fight against terrorism at the national level and to strengthen under the auspices of the United Nations effective international cooperation in this field on the basis of the principles of the Charter of the United Nations and norms of international law, including respect for international humanitarian law and human rights. The new US-led war on terrorism has called into question the very basis of humanitarian law and human rights in its disruptions of the rules of war, the status of enemy combatants, the treatment of immigrants and refugees, and the subversion of the UN Convention on Torture to the national protection of civil and human rights. In today's episode, we examine the theme of human rights and the rule of law in Canada and internationally. Kathleen Mahoney is the chairperson of Rights and Democracy, an international human rights organization based in Montreal, and she considers the rollback in basic human rights wrought by the international campaign against terrorism. Barbara Jackman is a human rights and immigration lawyer from Toronto who argued the Suresh case before the Supreme Court of Canada, its first decision concerning terrorism since 9-11. Kathleen Mahoney, chair of the board for the Centre Rights and Democracy, also known as the International Center for Human Rights and Democratic Development, an independent organization which promotes, advocates, and defends the democratic and human rights set out in the International Bill of Human Rights. The uh, 
consequences of September 11th are, are still rolling out in Canada and internationally. We've seen new institutions created to secure national security and international security. From the center's point of view, what is the dilemma faced by uh, civil society and human rights advocates after September 11th? Well, the dilemma essentially is is that on the one hand, you know, people are nervous, they're afraid, their sensitivities, of course, have been raised enormously to the threat of terrorism. And in many instances, it's certainly my view that that, that threat has been exaggerated for all sorts of other reasons that aren't stated, but nevertheless, the public feels threatened. So there's a need to make them feel more comfortable with that, with that risk. Uh, of attack. On the other hand, of course, is this um, is the delicate and, and always fragile nature of human rights. And uh, and what we see is is that uh, the the threat of terrorism uh, has given uh, governments uh, the opportunity now to clamp down on or to to push back uh, rights that we've taken years and years and years to develop and to maintain in uh, societies, whether they be free and open democratic societies or whether they be societies which are less uh, democratic but uh, gradually working towards uh, having more tolerance for dissent or more tolerance for free speech or freedom of association, we see those uh, rights uh, being very rapidly eroded. And yes, for terrorist groups or those suspected of terrorism, but also for uh, critics of the government, such as human rights groups and people that are trying to make uh, rights much more deeply embedded in the culture, those are groups that are being attacked and labeled as, as terrorists in some instances uh, and persecuted and some even imprisoned and, and so on. So uh, it's, a, it's a real dilemma because obviously uh, centers such as ours, uh, terrorism is an anathema. It's a horrific uh, violation of human rights. But on the other hand, the response to terrorism is also becoming increasingly a very serious violation of human rights. And what we're trying to do as a center is to maintain uh, or to help and influence uh, the powers that be to maintain a credible and, and a balance uh, between these competing interests such that we don't lose uh, the precious ground that we have won over many, many years of struggle. What um, are are the the basic uh, groups of rights that are going to be affected? You've mentioned some of them: the the basic fundamental rights of association, political activity, legal activity. How far does this threatening new legislation and institutions internationally? How far does it go, and how in terms of the the human rights and development issues that it affects? Well. Um, <clears throat> uh, it- the basic rights, I mean, the right to speech, the basic right to criticize, which is speech, uh, which also encompasses freedom of the press, um, we, we freedom to associate, to gather together, to meet, um, you know, the freedom to, uh, to communicate, uh, the freedom to be mobile, to move around, uh, to organize, uh, all of those uh, those rights have been curtailed. We even see in our own country here in Canada some of the basic, basic legal rights to do with uh, confidentiality between lawyer and client, uh, right to be informed on arrest, what the reasons are for your arrest, and things like that uh, have been significantly uh, eroded and exceptions made and so on in this new legislation uh, that's ostensibly to fight terrorism. So it's just you know the most basic of of our of our civil and political rights as well as our, our our economic social and cultural rights which tend to be affected as a result of the first group of rights being being uh, 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 you know I guess cut back uh, so you know it's uh, all rights are interconnected and you can't you can't limit some without l- limiting others so in fact what we're seeing is the whole range of of human rights and civil liberties um, uh, under attack, essentially. Besides this threat of terrorism and the risk and therefore consequent need to prevent acts of terrorism, um, what are the other contexts and interests at play in the new international security uh, agenda? 
or is it possible to delimit other interests that are at play in terms of uh, some of the economic interests uh, in terms of the UN Resolution 1373? It recognizes the importance of, of public security, of international security, yeah. but it also... In- implicates uh, the mo- concepts of humanitarianism, humanitarianism, the control of immigration, uh, the passage of identity of peoples from one country to another. Um, how, how has the culture of humanitarianism itself been affected now? Is it a less of a priority than ever in terms of international development? Well, that's a very good question, and I don't think we, I mean, only a year has gone by, and I don't think we've felt the full impact uh, that we, you know, may be feeling in that area. Um, in terms of immigration refugees, I mean, we're seeing for sure some uh, some very serious uh, uh, changes of view in, in that regard. Uh, there's a, a huge uh, response by the right side of the political spectrum, and there always has been a desire on the part of the right side of the political spectrum to limit <coughs> immigration, and to clamp down on on the access to our country by refugees, but now uh, they can use the extra added fear component of September the 11th uh, to say that you know we should be much more strict. And in fact, that is happening. Uh, another you know very significant development here is harmonization with uh, with American laws with respect to mobility immigration and, and refugees, <clears throat> and Canada always has been um, led, led uh, the free world, I think, in its, in its refugee policies and its uh, willingness to look at um, different kinds of situations in different contexts. For example, the issue of uh, women, uh, battered women in situations uh, in countries where, you know, they weren't protected by their governments from this kind of uh, abuse. Canada was the first country to recognize that that could be uh, interpreted in our in, uh, under the Refugee Convention to be a, a category of persecuted people. So, I mean, that's just one example. But <clears throat> Canada has has taken the lead in the past uh, in being more liberal-minded in terms of protecting people who are persecuted in other countries. I think we're going to see increasingly um, a different attitude prevail there because it's become much more hardened, uh, you know, the security, using the security agenda to harden uh, the views of, uh, of those who feel that we're, we've been far too generous. <clears throat> so I think, and we just saw, like, for example, yesterday, the uh, Fraser Institute came out with, uh, uh, with a study uh, that where they claim that, uh, you know, our immigration policy isn't uh, have the economic benefit that has always been claimed. I mean, a very dramatic uh, claim by them. And I, I think that... Uh, were we not in the climate we are today, I think that study would have just been dismissed as completely out of hand and very politically motivated, but it's not being received that way, <clears throat> necessarily. So, uh, yeah, I think that the culture uh, is, is changing, uh, the, the soft culture, you might call it, or the humanitarian view of the world. Um, I, I don't think it can help but, uh, but change with, uh, you know, the different, um, the, the different uh, world that we now seem to find ourselves in and the constant fear-mongering, this constant talk of war and so on. I mean, those, those kinds of conversations and that kind of media obviously creates <coughs> tensions between, you know, who we are and who the rest of the world is because uh, you can't go to war without having enemies. And uh, so you ha- and if people, you know, aren't minded that way, they have to be propagandized into thinking that way. So, uh, and along with that comes a, a much, much less of an atmosphere of humanitarianism and much more... Uh, a warlike atmosphere of aggression and, you know, uh, us and them, the us and the enemy kind of thinking. So um, I, I think that, uh, I think you've put your finger on a, a really important uh, question about the shifting, shifting the, the paradigm here of, uh, of having a, a different mental attitude uh, of, uh, of towards others in the world and to our place in the world as a, as a country who's, Tradition and reputation has always been the <clears throat> peacemakers and, you know, peacekeepers. Uh, we're now being uh, sort of pushed into a different kind of way of thinking, more of a warlike way of thinking. This language of war that was essentially evoked right after September 11th, 2001, this language of war... Um, 
represents a change in paradigm, but it also represents, doesn't it, uh, a fundamental shift within the language of war about how we treat one another when we so say we're waging war. Uh, the treatment, uh, suspension of basic concepts of uh, treatment of combatants, enemy combatants, definitions of enemy combatants. This whole debate that has happened about the incarceration or detention of Al-Qaeda suspects, mm-hmm. 600 plus now, and Guantanamo Bay, just as an example. Uh, has does this also are we seeing with this this example for for example Guantanamo Bay uh, the erosion not only of, of human rights but basic concepts of how we kill one and each other and 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 how we treat prisoners and this whole international framework that goes from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to conventions of war the whole thing seems to be becoming shakier and shakier and that. Do you think that this culture is going so much so that this language of war is really infusing how we look at the other, at uh, at aliens, at at people who are are not the same well, as us? It's uh, it's it. You have to see it in its historical context too. I mean, terrorists have changed the boundaries, okay. and that's prob- that's very problematic. Uh, it's also problematic on the side of of uh, you know law-abiding states. In their reaction, I mean, terrorists change the nature of war. Uh, the Geneva Conventions are designed for uniform soldiers that fight one another. You know, they're the laws. The Geneva Conventions essentially are the laws of war. They set down the rules. How do you fight? Just like a boxing match or whatever, a football game. And uh, what has happened, you know, in the last 25 years is that this phenomenon of terrorism, where you do not have uniformed combatants, you have people killing civilians as a strategy, you have people using uh, weapons, uh, chemical poisonous weapons and so on to kill civilians en masse, and so um, the rules uh, don't work uh, against those kinds of combatants. That's one huge problem. And what, what happened was that the, in terms of a legal regime, there was never you know, it, it's been difficult to adjust to that. There's been some conventions on terrorism, but it's a very difficult uh, new concept for the world community to deal with. Uh, are they criminals? Are they combatants? How do we treat them? Do we have to treat them the same as criminal prisoners? Do we treat them the same as prisoners of war? You know, all of those issues. And, um, and to me, this whole declaration of war is questionable. Uh, that was made because there's no country. Wars are fought in law between countries. <clears throat> and when the Al-Qaeda attacked uh, the United States and, uh, you know, attacked the, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and, 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 and airplanes, domestic airliners in the United States, they weren't uniformed soldiers. They weren't representing a state. It's completely unlike uh, Pearl Harbor, as it was compared to, there there is not a comparison there because Japan, the country, sponsored that attack, and so the Geneva Conventions and the laws of war were tailored for precisely that kind of a situation. But here, it's quite different. So um, this is the problem that we face, and it gives people room, gives people like the United States administration room to argue that uh, these, these people that they've arrested and are holding in Guantanamo Bay are not prisoners of war. Uh, but then I would say, well, what are they then? They must be criminals. Uh, but they don't fit that mold either. So, you know, this is a, a, a gap. This is a, a lacuna in the law that we're looking at, and, and the lawmakers have to respond to that uh, very, very quickly, it seems to me, because you're right, when you don't have rules, People make them up as they go along, and that can have very dire consequences because once that happens, well, right now it's the U.S. doing it, but what if uh, Saddam, you know, starts doing it when he gets uh, uh, involved, it looks like, in a war with, uh, with the United States or whoever? Uh, you know, you leave uh, lots of space then for him or any other um, regime to, to use the same tactics, and then you start a do- downward spiral, you know, of uh, never-ending uh, abuse and, and complete erosion of the rule of law. Uh, so that's why this sort of uh, situation we're looking at now is so very serious. And, 
you know, and it shows that uh, how vigilant um, we must be constantly to adjust to new situations and to create um, to create the proper regime for looking after these uh, these uh, kinds of situations. So, you know, I think that's the answer to that. It's just it's not a one-sided uh, criticism of the U.S. It's a it's a it's a world responsibility, and it's also uh, a consequence of uh, of terrorism and terrorists. Uh, in the way that they've decided to conduct their their uh, battle against uh, whatever enemies they see, uh, wherever they see them. In terms of the need for uh, establishing international institutions, strengthening pre-existing ones, uh, and development of international law to deal with terrorism and, and, and to balance the needs of security with basic human rights. Uh, are there some present institutions, um, is, for example, the International Criminal Court a place where we could develop those rules? That's a possibility. Um, of course, as we all know, there, there's some serious problems with the International Criminal Court and they need to sign on. The U.S. has uh, decided that they don't want to be a part of that uh, institution, which is very unfortunate. And, uh, you know, you can't have international institutions be very effective if you don't have, um, you know, people committed to them and being prepared to sub- subject themselves to their jurisdiction. I mean, one of the problems we have in, in the world today is the, is the notion of uh, rampant nationalism and, uh, you know, this incredible desire to be sovereign and not have anybody tell you what you're going to do. Well, in a global economy and in the global dependency that the world has now found itself in for just a whole range of, of reasons, uh, that kind of thinking doesn't take us very far in terms of um, dealing with, uh, you know, basic human rights and, uh, and human progress. And uh, so we have this situation now where we're, we see countries reverting back to these xenophobic kind of nationalisms, uh, probably in, in kind of reasons of, of self-protection or whatever. Uh, but uh, we definitely, you know, the U.S. that recently and its attitudes towards the Kyoto Accord and, and the uh, other arms uh, treaties and so on are definitely showing uh, tendencies in that direction. And, and that's really unfortunate for the safety of the world and the ability to to come to, you know, cooperative decisions on uh, on what makes the world a safer place. In terms of this uh, international, co- the possibility of international cooperation uh, in light of human rights, securing human rights, uh, are you seeing a changing discourse now uh, in terms of the recognition of the delicate nature of human rights and the massive resources and effort that has to be put into nurturing and developing them in a global context. I'm thinking, for example, um, specifically at the Monterey conference uh, back in March, uh, Jean Chrétien was quoted by the Globe and Mail as saying that he saw no link between terrorism and uh, poverty and development issues because Osama bin Laden was rich. And now remarks uh, that created a controversy uh, where he did link uh, dealing with terrorism, if not just terror, the reasons for terrorism, but dealing with the context for terrorism. Uh, one has to look at development issues, uh, development issues like education that touch the possibility and promotion of human rights in, in general. What kind of resources and what kind of work has to be done to protect this delicate nature of human rights given this new uh, new environment that we're in internationally? Well, first of all, they have to be recognized as important. And, uh, you know, I was encouraged by the recent comments of the Prime Minister um, because, uh, you know, human rights has just fallen completely off the radar screen and off the agenda, it seemed like, you know, for, since September the 11th. Uh, you know, thankfully, it looks like they're coming to the realization, and at least at the, in the PMO in Canada, that uh, you just we just can't do that. We can't afford to do that because uh, without some kind of counterbalance to um, other interests, uh, economic interests in particular, uh, there is a very bleak future ahead for for the world if we continue to, you know, ignore the fact that some of the world is getting increasingly poorer and <clears throat> much worse off in servicing 
the very, very wealthy countries. So I was very uh, heartened to, uh, to see the Prime Minister's remarks going in that direction, that there has to be some acknowledgement and responsibility taken for, you know, the extremely poor countries of the world and the fact that, that, that the rich countries of the world have been able to be enriched because of, uh, of the, uh, the exploitation of these poor countries that the, the rich countries have managed to uh, accomplish quite well. And um, by ignoring that, I think it, uh, the, the Prime Minister was saying, and I agree with him, it's to our peril that we will be setting the conditions for <clears throat> this kind of, uh, of activity in the future, in the long-term future, that uh, if, if we continue to ignore the fact that uh, we are becoming so wealthy and the poor countries are becoming increasingly poor, you set the stage. It's irrelevant if Osama bin Laden and I think that this is now well understood, it's irrelevant that he is an extremely wealthy man. Uh, it's the support that he can gain for his behavior that's critical. And when you see in countries uh, in, in, the, in, in Indonesia and uh, throughout South, Southwest Asia, Southeast Asia, basically, and throughout many countries of Africa, the support that this, uh, the fundamentalism is gaining <clears throat> and especially radical fundamentalist Muslim communities are gaining uh, with this uh, concept of, of violence and terrorism as being accepted. Uh, I think that uh, we would be absolutely foolish to, to ignore the fact that, uh, that poverty is a part of that and a sense of hopelessness and lack of power to control one's lives and one's destiny. Uh, does not lead to, to this kind of drastic behavior. Uh, so I was very glad to, to see the Prime Minister change his views on that and uh, to adopt a much more, I think, a commonsensical view of uh, cause and effect. To, uh, to take an example, one of the thematic priorities of, the, of rights and democracy uh, is women's rights. Mm -hmm. And if we were to take that example... Um, we can go and fight fundamentalist Islam and the way it contextualizes and restricts the possibility of, of, of being a free woman. Um, or we could go and educate more women in those communities, in those countries, uh, create resources and economic infrastructures that allow them to uh, liberate themselves and uh, perhaps educate their children in a different way. It, when you do those kind of, of exercises, uh, creating support networks and, and, and development resources so that women in various communities um, can work on their um, self-esteem, their self-independence and things like that, does that have a direct impact on the possibility of having uh, a more free-like society or having the capacity to uh, overcome fundamentalist urges in the face of terrible political and, and social ills in the countries that we're talking about? Oh, sure. I mean, fundamentalism is not a new concept by any means. It goes back to... Fundamentalism is as old as religion. <clears throat> There's always been fundamentalists, and fundamentalism occurs and, 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 and flourishes in, in times of stress and in times of uncertainty. And uh, most definitely, uh, and this is, of course, we've worked for years and years in this area, is supporting women in their own contexts and empowering them to take control uh, of their lives and improve their lives. And uh, this has been found to be uh, not just by us, but by, I think, every aid agency or every agency that works in human rights to be the case, that if you empower women in communities, you, you strengthen communities and, and their status improves economically and socially and in most other ways. And uh, that's not to say that, um, you know, we in any way uh, uh, take the view that the Western way is best or anything like that. It's a basic concept of human dignity and equality that we work from, that People in their own context should not be persecuted for any immutable reason, be that their sex or gender or their, their race or their religion. And uh, once that concept is internalized and people respect it, well, then communities can flourish. Um, but getting there is, is, <laughs> is a huge part of the problem, and poverty and lack of development resources and lack of uh, access to <clears throat> employment and so on, allow these other 
uh, uh, concepts such as fundamentalism to flourish because everyone wants to have control of their lives, and if there's no other method of control, uh, fundamentalism uh, can, can, can step in and provide that. And uh, fundamentalism, of course, we know is one of the major world threats to human rights, be that Muslim fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, Hindu fundamentalism, whatever, uh, any of those uh, doctrinaire, uh, you know, uh, views of the world that, that limit people's rights in order to get ahead uh, uh, are dangerous and limiting and, and, and drive <clears throat> communities into to poverty and despair. So, sure, rights and democracy has always tried to women as one of our thematic priorities, and we've tried to, uh, to work uh, through uh, women's organizations and, uh, and empowerment uh, strategies to, to assist women to be leaders in their communities and to provide for their families and, uh, and so on in, in such a way that, that they have control over their lives as dignified human beings. For somebody who might be listening to, to us at this moment and would be interested in, in uh, as a Canadian, uh, becoming more engaged with this concept of of the of democratic institutions human rights with the new context of terrorism and the security state what are some of the 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 elements that someone would have to look at in terms of of understanding the importance and the functioning of democratic institutions to protect human rights what for example we this year in Canada alone we celebrated the 20th anniversary of the um charter of rights and freedoms in the constitution since 1982 um and yet the celebration around that seemed very muted uh-huh. given what happened September 11th and there's a sense uh that the charter might be very good in coming uh jurisprudence for the protection of uh, of our basic rights or that perhaps there's been such a fundamental culture change, even within the judiciary, that perhaps the power of the charter risks being even more worn away in the coming years. Mm-hmm. What does a Canadian? What can a Canadian do to uh, make sure that those charter rights uh, are respected? Well, uh, it's just like anything else. I think any other political movement. I think people have to make their voices heard. And I think if people really feel concerned, and they should, about uh, preserving the way of life that we've come to know and, and, and love in Canada, uh, and be, be, be safe but, be, but also have a sense of freedom and a sense of liberty, they must make their views known and put human rights back on the agenda. Because frankly, it's not on the agenda in any demonstrable way. We've heard talk, but we have to uh, have a reaffirmation, it seems to me, in more concrete ways that, that Canada does assert its, uh, its views of, 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 of human rights in meaningful ways legislatively, and we shouldn't be rolling back uh, basic rights. We shouldn't be um, accepting uh, <clears throat> massive amendments uh, to our criminal code without comment. Uh, and, and essentially, that's what's happened in the last several months. We've had an incredible, um, massive amendment to our criminal code. I think it's at least, uh, if you look at the code, it's, it's doubled its size. It's about 70 pages in length, the new amendments, uh, to deal with security issues. And those changes went through with barely a, a whimper from, from the public. And uh, I know it's a tall order to people to educate themselves on such complex things, but... Um, I think, in fact, that people have to educate themselves as to what's going on. They have to make their voices heard, whether that be within community organizations, whether that be with their local representatives in politics or, or joining organizations uh, uh, that, that, uh, that stand for the protection of, of human rights. We have uh, rights and democracy. We have an organization of Friends of Rights of Democracy that... Uh, that's available for people that uh, want to support our work. But, um, you know, there's, there's a variety of different ways people can get engaged, and you just can't sit back and, uh, in this day and age, in, in my opinion, and, um, and just hope that somebody else is going to look after this for you. Uh, rights are so uh, precious and important to every single individual that uh, there is a corresponding responsibility to, uh, to protect them. And I don't think this is necessarily happening in Canada. I think we've fallen 
kind of asleep or else we've been traumatized to some extent into not acting or not thinking that <clears throat> that human rights are still important. But what the, the two major items on the agenda now, as I can see it on most governments, is, uh, is security and economic development, and neither of which will be developed in a sound way, I think, which will benefit all of us well unless they are tempered by uh, human rights considerations. In fact, I think that all these these uh, developments must be seen through the lens of, of maximizing as much as possible in the context that we live in, the human rights and individual rights of, of all Canadians, and indeed not just Canadians, but uh, that's, of course, our uh, our major priority in Canada uh, is to look after our own people first, but also, you know, the whole issue of, of immigration, refugees, uh, our place in the world, what positions we take on issues like you've mentioned, such as political or uh, military prisoners, and uh, make our views known. And uh, Canada does have a major role to play. We have credibility in the world uh, in the world for us, and, and we should uh, take advantage of that and, uh, and make sure that our politicians are expressing our views. Kathleen Mahoney is Chair of the Board of Directors of Rights and Democracy, also known as the International Centre for Human Rights and Democratic Development, based in Montreal. Rights and Democracy organized a think tank last May to consider the promotion of human rights and democracy in the context of terrorism and the security state. This information and information on the Centre's programs are available at their website at www.ichrdd.ca. Barbara Jackman is a Toronto-based lawyer working in immigration and refugee law and also with human rights. You have, a, I think, a unique experience post-September 11th in terms of dealing with many of the priorities facing our national security agenda, uh, our immigration laws, and our uh, towards uh, or reaction to September 11th. You also uh, argued and were counsel uh, for Mr. Suresh in the very important uh, Suresh case that was uh, decided by the Supreme Court earlier this year in January, which was very important because it's one of the first post-September 11th jurisprudences which deals with the concept of terrorism and uh, whether or not the concept of terrorism is too vague and what constitutes danger to the security of Canada. I was wondering if you could first start talking about the Suresh case and give us a sense of why that was so important. Well, uh, Suresh uh, is a Tamil um, who worked in a community center in Toronto. That community center supported the um, Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, which is uh, an organization engaged, has been engaged in an armed conflict against the Sri Lankan government, trying to achieve greater autonomy, um, if not independence, for um, the Tamils. I'm pretty familiar with the history of... Um, in Sri Lanka in terms of how Tamils have been treated. And I think it's fair to say that they suffered from very serious state repression um, because they were Tamils. The Sri Lankan government didn't want to give them um, any kind of autonomy. And in fact, there's a whole history of a diminishment of human rights in Sri Lanka for Tamils, that they, are lying, they were denied their language rights and denied access to higher education, and there was a great deal of repression against them by the government. So Suresh, working in a community organization, that organization was engaged in fundraising, mostly for humanitarian causes, but some of it went to the LTT directly. And he was put in jail because it was alleged that he was a member of a terrorist organization because of his support work. And I don't know if people remember, but, you know, back through the 60s and the 70s when there was um, uh, pretty much an international opposition to apartheid in South Africa, very many Canadians, myself included as a student, supported the African National Congress, which was also at that point thought to be a terrorist organization. So I didn't see Suresh's cases much different than that. 
However, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service decided that he presented a threat to Canada's security because he was supportive of the Tamil Tigers. The lower courts, the Federal Court Trial Division and the Federal Court of Appeal, decided that Suresh could be returned to Sri Lanka, even though his activities in Canada were completely lawful. Um, and it didn't matter that he would be tortured because the court considered um, support for the Tamil Tigers to warrant deportation to torture. That was the issue that went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the decision was, the case was argued before September 11th, but the court didn't come out with its judgment until January 11th um, of 2002. So it's clear from the court's decision that the court was very cognizant of the fact that September 11th had happened um, and decided I think basically that um, it was not all right for immigrants to support organizations that were engaged in violence against the state. I think that's as a result of September 11th that the court took such a narrow view of the rights of, of non-citizens to engage in political, lawful political activity in Canada. I think September 11th had a very clear impact on that decision, on their decision in that respect. But what the Supreme Court did decide is that Canada cannot remove people to torture. And there was a prima facie case made out that Suresh was at risk of torture. And even though the federal court said it was all right for Canada to return to a person to torture, the Supreme Court said it wasn't all right. So in that sense, the Suresh decision is a very important decision for non-citizens. In terms of uh, arguing the... Um the terrorism definition that was in reference to the Immigration Act of 1985. Um, how different is the new terrorism definitions introduced um, under the new le legislation, Bill C-36 in particular? Uh, they decided that to give a, a broad and literal uh, interpretation to these concepts of terrorism and danger to the security of Canada. I was wondering... Uh, now that you've seen some of, of the reaction post-September 11th, has the definitions changed? And are the, we The Immigration Act hasn't changed. The Immigration Act doesn't define terrorism, and that was one of the problems that, that we had with it, was that terrorism was whatever the Security Service wanted it to be, so that um, if Canada wasn't supportive of a particular... I'll give you an example. In Kosovo, when NATO was involved, the Kosovars... Um, that were engaged in armed conflict against the Serbian government were not called terrorists. Um, but the Tamil Tigers are terrorists, the Palestinians are terrorists. So it, it was that whole, that old saying that terrorism is in the eye of the beholder, I think that that's very true. And, when it, and certainly the concern that we raised with the Supreme Court was how does it get applied fairly? Um, because you certainly don't find our government deciding that... Um, that government actors in countries that are very repressive um, are terrorists. They, they don't do that. They let people come into Canada um, whose country, who may have had a direct role as leaders in a particular country in the repression of different people. And I can think of a lot of countries, Sri Lanka, one of them, Israel, another, a number of different countries where there has been direct repression. So the, the Supreme Court didn't accept that argument in Suresh. But since then... I think that the anti-terrorism legislation, which does define terrorism, and the Immigration Act still doesn't, at least gives some parameters for what it's supposed to be, whereas the Immigration Act didn't. The Immigration Act just left it it's like it's in the eye of the beholder as to what is terrorism. So in some ways, in a, a perverse kind of way, the anti-terrorism legislation is an improvement over what... Um, what existed before September 11th, because it defines the term and doesn't just leave it broad and vague. In terms of the case, going back to the case itself and the and the arguments you presented before the Supreme Court, um, there were there are arguments dealing with the the charter 
uh, charter rights of non-citizens or if they would apply, um, and specifically with legal rights and and, uh, and the right not to be tortured. Um, what was the, the the other arguments in terms of association, and and how did how did you see the, the fundamental rights and liberties of your client uh, being um, threatened, not only by the deportation to torture, but in terms of the ability to work within his community? Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the... I find the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in the Suresh case very depressing um, in terms of its findings around freedom of association. Basically, the court just passes over it and doesn't really address the issues. But you got to remember, in Suresh's case, Suresh was not doing anything illegal. If Suresh had been a Canadian citizen, there would have been no um, criminal sanctions that could have been brought against him, no any other kind of sanctions have been brought against him for the work he was doing. It was legal. Canada didn't make it unlawful for um, anybody in the immigrant community or in the Canadian community, for that matter, to support lawfully causes in other countries. Those causes may involve violence. We had argued that a person's freedom of expression and association protected, uh, protected him from being deported on the basis of lawful activities so that if I, as a Canadian, can work in a community centre that supports the Tamil Tigers, why can't Suresh work in a community centre that supports the Tamil Tigers? It's not unlawful. If Canada wanted to make it unlawful, that's one thing. Make it unlawful, and then it's fair to everybody. But to just target non-citizens and say, well, you don't have a right to associate with others or to express your political views in a lawful manner because you're not a citizen, is wrong. And... The Supreme Court in Suresh basically decided that it's all right to target non-citizens um, for their political activities, which are completely lawful, while um, citizens can claim a right to, uh, to freedom of association and expression. It's a bad decision that way. It's a very bad decision, and I think very dangerous. It goes back to sort of like the McCarthy era, where people were, are being, were being targeted solely on the basis of their political beliefs. That's what's happened within a number of immigrant communities in Canada. And if you you just look at it, what it, it's almost like a list of oppressed people. The Palestinians are oppressed. They're all, if they support the PLO, they're terrorists. The Kurds have been oppressed in Turkey. If they supported the PKK, they're terrorists. Um, the Tamils, they've been oppressed in Sri Lanka. If they, in lawful ways, support the Tamil Tigers, they're terrorists. So it's the, the imbalance there is that the government doesn't go against, our government doesn't go against any of the state actors. They only go against the victims. So we say to people, yes, come to Canada, we'll protect you as refugees, and then we turn around and call them all terrorists. This status of the non-citizen, it's not only in Canada post-September 11th that we've, we've seen some real problems. Um, if we compare it to the legislation that was passed post-September 11th, for example, in the UK, where one of the most controversial uh, aspects of their new legislation in the fall was uh, the right to uh, preventatively or to detain non-citizens indefinitely. That was uh, overthrown by the higher courts, and uh, it looks like the European uh, uh, Commission as well will decide uh, against that legislation. you don't think that the Supreme Court was able to to rise to protect then in this decision to rise to protect the 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 basic humanitarian and international concepts of 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 respect of the individual. It, it, the the law in Britain where um, a person is detained indefinitely was already in existence in Canada before September 11th. Serge was detained for two and a half years. He had never done anything illegal in Canada ever. Um, in terms of being involved in terrorism, being involved in illegal or criminal activities. Um, but under the security certificate system that came into, came into place, I think it was 1992, persons who are alleged to be members of a terrorist organization, even if, you know, it's a professor who just espouses beliefs, are automatically put in jail and kept there indefinitely. Our Supreme Court of Canada already said that was legal. In Mr. Ahani's case, which was the other one that went up to the Supreme Court on return to risk of torture at the same time that Suresh's case went up there, Um, in Mr. Ahani's case, he had challenged the security.
Security Certificate process, arguing that it was unfair. It One of the reasons it was unfair was it provided for arbitrary detention and no habeas corpus, no bail review, nothing like that. And the Supreme Court didn't, didn't, um, didn't grant leave to review the question of whether continued detention without review was arbitrary and unlawful or contrary to the Charter. So our courts, I mean, I think you have to sort of look at it in context. Our courts do not have a history of protecting the human rights of non-citizens. Our courts doesn't, don't have an extensive history, I think, in terms of protecting free speech or anything like that. So I think you'll find when you get to courts like the European Court on Human Rights, there's a long history there of ensuring that that uh, human rights are protected. And our courts really opted for a more conservative role. In, in terms of, of this... this uh uh, possibility of indefinite in detention, does it not fly in the face of, of basic international conventions or international uh, declarations about the, the rights of peoples before they're taken into the context of citizenship and civil rights? Well, I think, I mean, I think it does. I think putting a person in jail and not allowing a judge or anyone to review the need to detain until two or three or four years later after the person's been detained for so long um, is an arbitrary detention and is prohibited by the Charter, and the courts in Canada should recognize that. On the, other, on the other hand, I should point out that if people are not satisfied with the decision made by a court in Canada, and that would certainly um, include you know, the Supreme Court of Canada, they have an option of complaining to the United Nations Human Rights Committee or to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. So some of these issues are before um, those bodies on the question of whether or not Canada's in compliance with its international obligations. It's just the international complaints process takes a long time, so there isn't any final decision. But certainly, I think the Supreme Court's wrong to say that um, it's all right to detain someone for an indefinite period of time without having it... Um, a review of the need to detain the person. This difference in approach, uh, judicial approach, uh, is it because the Supreme Court wants to see uh, the rule of law in Canada uh, given uh, a leg- only a legislative parameter? That is, we don't deal with human rights when we go before the courts. We go in terms of civil rights and the rights of citizens. Is, is that what the Supreme Court is doing? I you know, I can't really, yeah. I can't read the minds of the Supreme Court of Canada, but if I had to put it down to anything, I think I would put it down to ethnocentrism. That um, that it's a fear of strangers. It's a fear of um, opening the doors to let too many people come into Canada. I think that's why the court's been restrictive in the immigration cases um, in terms of, you know, being cautious or refusing to recognize human rights of persons who are not citizens. I mean, if you look at the Supreme Court's treatment of human rights issues when they arise in the criminal justice system or they arise in other contexts like equality issues, the court has been very good and very proactive. Um, When you get to the the cases where the person coming before the court is not a citizen of Canada, then the court's been very, you know, it has been much more restrictive in recognizing rights. So I really think it's a kind of fear of, of getting too many people in the country. Um, in terms of your work with uh, security certificates um, that existed before the laws, I've, my first question is, has the new laws uh, and the new uh, Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, has it tightened or made it even easier for the uh, system to, to uh, work with security certificates and these deportation orders? No, I, I, the law is pretty much the same way that it was um, before September 11th. The Immigration Act was already fairly restrictive um, and did provide for these security certificates where um, the person was, you know, the person is detained, doesn't get to know the case against the person, and has to answer sort of in a vacuum. Um, that's been there for a long time. I think the difference is, since September 11th is how people are treated. Um, under the security certificate system. Well, no, actually, there is one legislative change which I think will make a big difference, and that's under the... um, Originally, this goes way back to the 80s, 
when the RCMP was alleged to have been engaged in dirty tricks, the Security Intelligence Review Committee was created to ensure that the security service that was being created, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, didn't engage in dirty practices again, again that there was some responsible body that was there to monitor and make sure that, that the security service was acting in accordance with law. That committee heard all security complaints initially. In 92, the government moved um, non-citizen cases, non-permanent resident cases, to the federal court. And I think you have to remember that the federal court is a body of judges who have no particular expertise in security matters. The federal court, I think the government realized, was a much better decision-making body for the government because the federal court really doesn't test the evidence the way the Security Intelligence Review Committee did. So now with the new legislation that just came into place at the end of June, the government's put all of the security cases before the um, federal court, effectively gutting the Security Intelligence Review Committee. So the body with expertise now has no decision-making authority on complaints or um, security certificates imposed on non-citizens. That will make a difference. That will make a big difference because the Security Intelligence Review Committee used to seriously question the assumptions being drawn by the security service. They used to cross-examine and test the evidence before them to ensure that the case against the person was truly a well-founded case, whereas the federal court normally gets a file and just accepts what CSIS has told them to be true. So it, it, that will make a difference. But I think the other big difference is in how people are treated. We've had clients subject to security certificates. I mean, I've been practicing since the late 70s. And originally, people were, not, were rarely detained because if there was a security concern about the person, detention wasn't often used. So the person would be at large, and they would go ahead with their case. In 92, the act changed, and they decided that non-citizens would um, be detained on security certificates, and that's what led to Suresh, and Ms. Suresh was in jail two and a half years. Mr. Ahani was in jail nine years before his case was decided. Um, and in, I'm, that was the issue around arbitrary detention, so I don't think it's necessary to automatically detain everybody. But not only now under the since um, since uh, September 11th, not only are, is the person being detained, um, they're being detained in solitary confinement. So one of the clients that I have um, who's alleged to have been associated with al-Qaeda, which he strongly disputes that that's the case, um, he, he's been in solitary confinement since October 2001. Now, we don't even do that to people who have been convicted of criminal offenses. So why are we doing it to people like him who haven't been convicted of any offense, much less have they been alleged to have engaged in any kind of criminal activity? That man um, who's detained, the, the case against him doesn't even assert that he was involved in, in any kind of wrongdoing, but he's been held in solitary confinement. What is the experience for you to um, deal with these 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 one-sided processes, um, and can you reflect on what the secret and preventative um, hearings before federal court judges under C thirty six will be like for a lawyer to try and defend and protect someone like your the client you just described? Well, I mean, I find them very frustrating. I think that the hearings, the security hearings that went before the Security Intelligence Review Committee, were as fair as they could be. There was counsel who cross-examined witnesses in secret. Um, we could give the counsel questions and say, these are the questions we think you should ask in order to test the evidence. You can't do that with the federal court. There is no testing of the evidence in the same way at all. The federal court just gets the file and, and appears, from what I can see, to just take the written evidence as though it's true and then expect the person to answer without knowing the case against them. Um, and without being able to properly challenge the evidence. But I think under Bill C-36, Bill C-36 the Anti which is now the Anti-Terrorism Act, I think that what you'll find is anybody who's subject to any kind of security concern, 
that those cases have been taken away from the Ontario court and given to the federal court, and I think for the same reason, that the government knows the federal court is unlikely to really seriously challenge the case, the evidence against the person. The federal court will receive a file from CSIS. You may have the occasional judge who will say, well, I want to talk to an officer um, to, to be sure that, you know, this evidence is solid evidence, but most of them won't. They'll just... Um, receive a file, and when you think of it, if you receive a file and you haven't challenged, you haven't tested it. There's an there's there's really a basic assumption that you're accepting that that evidence is true, because if you're not challenging it by cross-examining anyone, then how are you going to know if it's true or not? So I I think that lawyers who end up who will end up acting for people. Um, who've been alleged to have been involved in terrorist activities or support for terrorist organizations will find that it's very Kafkaesque like it's um, the government presenting their case in secret, the person not knowing what it's at all at all what it's about and um, and then the the court without testing it being making a decision on it. Which is Barbara Jackman is a human rights and immigration lawyer based in Toronto. She defended the Suresh case before the Supreme Court of Canada. This has been Part 11, Human Rights and the Rule of Law from the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy, where we examine the rule of law in the context of the terrorist crimes of September 11th. I was Khalid, and this has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM, the People's Power Station in Mount Real. Join us next time for our 12th and final episode, Terrorism, Law and Democracy, September 11th, A Year in Review.